You're listening to a podcast from Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, whose mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see everybody chatting and uh, having some good conversation. But if we can ask you to go ahead and find a seat, we're going to kick things Lefty. off here a little bit. You saw the pic- you saw the profile pictures that I put. All right. Well, as we've been doing this new series on the, the Reformation with the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation that took place uh, on Halloween, we've uh, been doing a little bit of a recap or kind of just helping you guys know a little bit more about the Reformation and why it happened and some of the key figures in the Reformation before we, we start the message each morning. And so this morning, I my, myself and my wife Anne here are going to be uh, giving a little bit of a bio on a couple of people uh, I'm going to be talking about William Tyndall, and my wife is going to be talking about Lady Jane Grey. And so, uh, William Tyndall, um, so as Martin Luther, we talked about last week, he uh, essentially started the Reformation um, in Germany on, on, on the mainland, as on the continent, as they referred it to. William Tyndall effectively um, pioneered the Reformation on the island uh, in the UK. And um, he was a brilliant man. Um, he was educated at Oxford and Cambridge. Um, and his, his work inspired him to translate the, the New Testament and get it into the, from the original languages that Erasmus had gotten it into, and take that and get it into the common language of man, so that, that all the people would be able to read it in their own language, and so they'd be able to understand it and know the Word and know what God um, had provided for them to understand and, and seek after Him. And so that, that was his big goal, translate it so that even the common man would know. Um, and so... He, he was a brilliant linguist. He spoke over nine languages, and he spoke them so well that you, you wouldn't know that they weren't his own native tongue. And in 1521, he became a chaplain and a tutor, but his faith put him at odds with the other clergymen. And he's quoted as, as having said and gotten in an argument with another clergyman, and this other clergyman had said, we had better be without God's law than the Pope's, to which Tyndall replied, I defy the Pope and all his laws, and if God spares my life, Ere many years, I will cause the boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scriptures than thou dost. He wasn't far off. And so he went from um, where he was at on the island to London, seeking uh, permission to be able to translate the, the scriptures into English. Um, but as Henry VIII was uh, the king at the time, he was, a, he was a, a good Catholic man. He was a defender of the faith. Um, he did not get permission to translate the scriptures into English. And so he... He left the island. He went to the mainland seeking refuge in, in um, favor of the Protestant Reformation to be able to find a place where he could uh, dwell to be able to translate the scriptures into English. And in 1525, he completed his translation of the New Testament into English. And then in 1526, it was printed and made available to the people. Um, the, the New Testament translation that he had made into English was smuggled onto the island and, and into the London and the UK and the Scotland. And made its way to the people, but as it was found, the, the clergymen and the, the officials, they took his scriptures that he had made, and he, they burnt it, and um, kind of funny, they, they burnt it, but in order to burn it, they had to buy it, and so they were still funding his, his ability to be able to write the scriptures and to be able to get it out there and get it into the word of common man, and so, yeah, a little twist there, um, 
but he, he continued to work in various cities, translating the scriptures, um, make, writing various pamphlets, getting, getting the news out there. But he, was also, he wasn't just a scholar. He wasn't just a man that, that translated the words and put them into the, man, the words of a common man. He was also a pastor. He was out there, and he was caring for the people. He was, he was um, ministering to them. Um, and um, seeking out the refugees and, and getting the word into the hands of the people and also helping them to understand it as well. It's one thing to, to have the scriptures and read, but there's, as we all know, there's a lot of confusing stuff in there. And so it's helpful to have people that, that know the word and that care for the people to be able to um, provide some clarity and provide some, some additional information and some resources for us to be able to understand what it is that God's word is saying and how he is he's working through that. And so he was a pastor too. That's what he was out there doing. But ultimately, he was betrayed. So um, Henry Phillips was a man who had, had stolen money from his father and gambled it away and, and was looking to try and find peace um, with his dad and get restitution. And he heard about that there was a price on the head of William Tyndall. And so what he did is he, um, William Tyndall at the time was in Antwerp, um, and Henry Phillips knew that he wasn't going to find anybody in Antwerp that would be able, like, willing to join him to, to capture this man and, and to take him back to the king. So he traveled to a different, different area, gathered some men, came back, took captive William Tyndall, and took him, to, uh, took him back to prison. And when he was in prison, he, he kept working, he kept writing. He was, he was held in prison for 18 months, but his trial was just a formality. They, they knew that he was going to be convicted. And the two accusations, the main accusations that he was brought with that, that led to his trial were that first, he had maintained that faith alone justifies. Second, he maintained that to believe in the forgiveness of sins and to, be, and to embrace the mercy offered in the gospel was enough for salvation. So he was standing on the truths that we've been talking about here as, as part of what the Protestant Reformation is. The, so those five solas, that is grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone to the glory of God alone because we know it through Scripture alone. And so he was charged with, with standing on those beliefs, and the punishment for that was death. And so in early October of 1536, he was strangled and burned at the stake. Um, quite a way to go out for believing what the scriptures say. Um, and so as he, was, as he was dying, his last words were a prayer where he said, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Um, so just think that, the, the dying breath of a man who was being martyred for believing in his faith Instead of cursing the individuals that were, that were killing him, he was praying that the eyes of the leaders would be opened so that the word of God would spread and people would know, know the truth. They would know the scriptures. They would know who God is. And his prayers were answered. In 1539, just three years later after he was martyred, um, King Henry approved the publication of the Great Bible. And so the Bible is now in English. Um, and from that, it was able to go into many other translations. And if you look even... Even today, so in, in 1988, they looked at the King James Bible, and it showed that over that 84% of the New Testament words and 76% of the Old Testament were the words of William Tyndall. So just to think of that, that impact that this one man had, even on the, the way that we have the Bible today, the, the way that he translated it and the words that he used, um, just the long-lasting effect of that. And so... Um, just coin, the coining of many phrases like scapegoat and Passover, I think, um, those sorts of things. So um, God gave Tyndall a brilliant mind and a wholehearted passion for the scriptures and for the people to know the scriptures, so that heart of the pastor as well. Um, and ultimately, 
um, the challenge, that, that argument that he had with that clergyman came to fruition. Um, the, the scriptures were translated so that even the plowboy, even the, the kid work in the field was able to know the scriptures and they were able to seek God and to know him. And because of that, people were able to, to know the word, know the Lord, and a lot of people learned to read because the scriptures were available to them. So you may have heard of Lady Jane Grey. She's also considered and known to be the nine days queen of England. What you may not know is that much of her story is actually tied to religion, and she was, of essence, a martyr of the Reformation. So to understand the situation, it helps to understand some about the political climate at the time. So this is in the 1530s. Most of the states across Europe are trying to determine if their people are going to stay under the Church of Rome or go Protestant. Now, in England, you have King Henry VIII, who at the time is a Catholic, but he desperately wants a male heir. So Catherine of Aragon had given him a daughter, Mary, but no surviving boys. So he gets this grand plan that maybe Anne of Boleyn could give him a boy, but he first needs an annulment from Catherine. Well, there's a big snag in that, and the Pope won't grant him an annulment. So after uh, a few years and much political maneuvering, he does go Protestant. It's probably important to note here that Anne was also Protestant, but actually by conviction. <laughs> so Anne is able to give him Elizabeth, but eventually beheaded, uh, ostensibly for treason, but most believe because she never gave him a boy or likewise produced any male heirs. His third wife, Jane Seymour, eventually did give him a boy, Edward. Edward was raised Protestant, and by all accounts was very sincere in his faith. Uh, when his father finally did die, he succeeded his father and became Edward VI. Now, Jane was actually Edward's cousin and an enthusiastic Protestant. She was considered to be a child prodigy. She was proficient in French, Italian, Latin, Greek. Uh, the first account of her was an incident where a family friend visited and they recorded that she was reading Plato in the original Greek. She was 14. <laughs> so when asked why, she said that her parents weren't particularly pleased with anything she did and that her schoolmaster was kind, so learning had become her only pleasure. Uh, to say she was a bookworm would be a massive understatement. She wrote Henrik Bullinger, who was a reformer of Zurich, uh, about studying Hebrew. They corresponded back and forth, uh, him offering her theological wisdom, uh, all in Greek. She was 15 at the time. So, she came to be queen due to the religious convictions of her cousin, Edward, and in some ways by the machinations of his political advisor, John Dudley. John Dudley is a fairly important figure in this story because he's the one that convinced Edward early on his deathbed to bypass both his sisters as heirs, especially the militantly Catholic Mary, and instead designate Jane as his heir. Now, as you might imagine, there was some resistance to this, but it was seemingly legitimate. Parliament had already bypassed Mary and Elizabeth as heirs in Henry's quest to proceed to kind of continue to pursue to have that male heir in Edward. However, um, at the same time, John Dudley also somehow convinced Jane's parents to force her to marry his own son, Guilford, 
presumably because he wanted his son to one day be crowned king. Now, we don't actually know much about Guilford other than the fact that he was probably roughly Jane's age and he likely had as little to do and say in the matter as Jane did. But when it comes to Jane, uh, it gets more interesting. So Edward dies on July 6th. Technically, this is when Jane became queen. However, most people don't consider to have her have become queen until July 10th when she actually got the news that she was queen. At that time, she entered the Tower of London as a queen, awaiting her coronation. Now, two factors kept this from happening. One was that the queen, excuse me, that the English, even the Protestants in the kingdom, were very hesitant to change the line of secession. The second was that the public disliked and wholly distrusted this Dudley figure in the first place. They largely saw Guilford and Jane as mere pawns, and that made them hesitant, as you might imagine. Now, it doesn't seem that Jane would have been the pawn that they had expected. For one thing, she refused to name Guilford as king, even though he was her husband. But even so, the Prizy Council declared Mary as queen. So that was on July 19th. That's where we get the nine-day queen. And Jane became prisoner in the same tower that she entered as queen. Yeah, <laughs> nice twist there, right? So, Mary wanted to pardon her cousin, but she even put off, I shouldn't say but, she even put off signing her death warrant a few times. This is where the but comes in. Two things ultimately forced her hand. First was that Jane's father took part in the rebellion against Mary. Not looking so good, right? Second was Jane's religion. Jane, even before Mary became queen, or she was declared queen, had offended Mary's Catholic sensibilities. She had rebuked a friend who worshipped the bread that was blessed during Mass. Even after Mary became queen, Jane continued to openly oppose her as she tried to reintroduce the Catholic Mass. <clears throat> her letters show that Jane believed wholeheartedly in Protestant doctrine, specifically that faith was enough for so that salvation by grace uh, was enough through faith alone. And if Jane was alive and Protestant, Mary feared that the, those in her kingdom who were Protestant would continue to try to crown her as queen. Mary even went as far as to send her own personal chaplain, a well-educated and persuasive man named Freckenham, I know, right, to try to convert Rain to Roman Catholicism. They debated for days. Uh, effectively, Jane countered him on every argument he had with Scripture. She was 16. Yeah. At the end of their time together, the priest told her he was sure that they would never meet again, implying that uh, Jane was damned. <laughs> to which Jane responded, Truth is that we shall never meet unless God turn your heart, for I stand undoubtedly assured that unless you repent and turn to God, you are a sad and desperate case. And I pray to God that he send you his Holy Spirit, for he has given you his great gift of utterance. And if it please him to open the eyes of your heart to his truth. Lady Jane Grey was beheaded on February 12, 1554, after reciting Psalms 51 and echoing the words of her Christ, Into thy hands I commend my spirit.
I appreciate you guys sharing those stories. We come from a, a rich faith, don't we? A, a rich history. And, and it's important just to sit and remember uh, what led us up to many of the blessings that we have today, including the, the scriptures that we are going to so easily open today and, uh, and hear, from, hear from the Lord. Uh, and uh, I just want to briefly give credit where credit is due. Uh, we are not a church of Protestant history buffs. I know it may look like that from our bios, but we have a lady in the church, Christy Raj, who's been writing these bios for us and then giving them out uh, to the elders in training and their wives, and we're learning the bios and then sharing them back with you guys. So uh, thank you, Christy. She's uh, visiting family in Thanksgiving right now, but when she comes back, you guys be sure to pat her on the back for using her gifting to bless Red Sea. Uh, as Chris said, we are in a series on the Reformation. Um, we're going through the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, and one of the things that's been real helpful for me in this series is understanding some of the Catholic theology that led to the Reformation. Uh, I've always understood kind of my theology as an evangelical and a Protestant evangelical um, because our faith comes out of the Protestant movement, but I've never understood a whole lot about Catholic theology and Catholic doctrine and how they viewed salvation and how they would get to the point, particularly of believing that certain works would lead to salvation when the Scriptures seem to teach a very different way to come to God. And so I came across an analogy this week uh, as I was studying that, that Catholic theologians would use to justify their argument for salvation through works, uh, and it's called the king and the small lead coin is the analogy that they would use. And it goes something like this. In medieval times, a currency was made from precious metals, okay? So you had gold coins, you had silver coins, and the coins held their own value because of the money that the precious metal that they were made out of. But what would happen is during times of war or a, a tough financial time, the king would recall all of the precious metals, all of the coins in the kingdom, and then he would issue lead coins in their place, and he would guarantee the value of the lead coin, okay? Our currency system today works a lot of the same way. A $100 bill is worth more than a $1 bill, not because of the precious paper that it is printed upon, but because of the government that issues the, the monetary value. So th it worked the same way during these tough financial times. But then what, you would, hap what would happen after the, crisis was what, well, the financial crisis was over, you could then bring your lead coins back to the king, and he would reissue you a gold or a silver coin that held its value, okay? So Catholic theologians during the Reformation, when accused of using works to merit salvation, would say that the good works were like lead coins. They held no value in and of themselves. But God had promised through the covenant to treat them as if they were of much greater value, just like a king would treat a lead coin, okay? Therefore, human works were considered as gold, capable of purchasing salvation. So that helped me understand that theology a little bit. We and the Protestants, uh, the Protestant reformers, had a very different theology about how to come to God. And this is what they believed, and it's captured in the five solas that we're going to put up here on the screen. The Protestant theologians, on the other hand, taught that salvation was a gift of God's grace, sola gratia, found not in any pope or mass, but in Christ alone, solus Christus, and received by simple faith alone, sola fide. And we can know this for certain only through Scripture alone, sola scriptura, 
Only if these these things are true, the sinner contributing nothing to his own salvation can all to the glory go to God, sola de gloria. Here we see the five tenets of the Reformation as articulated by John Calvin, which we're going to begin talking about next week. So we're going to spend the next two weeks of this series talking about the next two solas of the Reformation, which are sola gratia and sola fide, grace alone and faith alone. And these two theological concepts together make up what we call justification, okay? Justification is concerned with how an individual enters into a relationship with God. How can a sinner be accepted by a righteous God? What must an individual do in order to be accepted by this righteous God? All of those questions are answered in the idea of justification. How can we be justified before God? Now, justification was one of the primary issues that the Reformation dealt with. But justification by faith or by works was by no means something new to faith. Uh, you can look back uh, before, uh, you can look back into Old Testament times uh, and see people trying to figure out how to get to God. How, do, how am I made right so that I can stand before God? Uh, you see the, the life of Jesus and the amount of time that Jesus spent talking about the way to get to God, how to be justified before God. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote whole books of the New Testament, just the book of Romans, just tackling this idea of how can I be justified uh, before a righteous and a holy God. Then you have uh, 500 years after Jesus' death, uh, you have the early church fathers who are arguing through what it means to be justified by faith. Uh, some of the most well-known uh, ones in the argument is uh, the early church father Augustine in the 5th century argued against a guy named Pelagius in what's known as the Pelagian controversy or the anti-Pelagian controversy. So you have, you've, they've been, historians have been duking this out for, for centuries. And Augustine, he believed that man's fallen condition prevented him to come to God. There was the only way for us to come to God was on the behalf of God by him coming and saving mankind. Pelagius, on the other hand, he taught that humans actually had the ability within themselves to come to God. There was no inherited sin, and salvation is earned through good works. Okay? So this is a thousand years before the Reformation. The church and the early church fathers are arguing over this particular issue. Well, it's kind of ironic in that particular stance, in that particular issue, is that Augustinian's arguments of grace through faith won, and Pelagius's argument of grace through works lost. Pelagius was considered a, a heretic by the Roman Catholic Church, by the Catholic Church at the time, okay? Then you fast forward a thousand years in history, and you find what's known as the Via Moderna, which is kind of the modern, it's called the modern way. It's how they thought about theology and God. And the, and the Via Moderna taught that the covenant between God and humans established the conditions necessary for justification. And those conditions were that God had ordained that he will accept an individual on conditions that this individual first fulfills certain demands. Okay? So you have guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin and William Tyndale who are raised in this theology, the the Via Moderna, right? They're they're being taught that you have to earn salvation, 
The works in and of themselves don't have value, but God gives those works special value, and it's us working with God to earn salvation. Well, this obviously led many Christians believing that justification could be achieved through good works, good deeds. And the Catholic Church believed that God faithfully granted forgiveness to those who did their best. Now, Luther and Calvin, on the other hand, and the whole Reformation, as they were reading the Bible for the first time, many of them, and studying the Bible for the first time, they're learning that if, if God is truly righteous, then a sinner can't do enough good works. Not that good works are bad, but if God's righteous and I'm not, I can't do enough good works to earn my salvation. Therefore, the only way for me to be justified must be as a gift of God's grace to me. So then good works, the reformers believed, were not a means of salvation, but they were the result of having been justified. Okay? So I'm just trying to unpack the theology a little bit. How did, how did we get to this point? Now, like I said, this doctrine of justification, I think, was one of the most significant things that came out of, out of the Protestant Reformation in, uh, in Europe. And it's the reason why we, as uh, evangelicals, the people of Red Sea, can, 500 years later now, open up our Bibles and read it in our language uh, and have the covenant that we have, which we're going to put up here on the screen, that teaches that Scripture alone is the foundation for faith and practice, and it teaches that we are saved through the saving work of Jesus Christ alone, not by our own righteousness, by grace alone, not by our own merit through faith alone, not by our own effort, all to the glory of God alone. The five souls of the Reformation. That's why we believe what we believe. So we're going to unpack uh, some of those over the next two weeks. Uh, like I said, today we're going to talk about sola gratia, grace alone. And particularly I want to talk about uh, grace alone, uh, which is we receive salvation by grace alone, not by our own merit. So I want to invite you guys to stand up as we read the Word of God together. Uh, one of the key texts that we find uh, that Luther and Calvin also found, uh, their theology in is in the book of Ephesians, verses 2, 1 through 10. And because of uh, their willingness to uh, understand the Scriptures and to preach the Scriptures, and for guys like William Tyndale to offer his life so the Bible could be, could be written, and for uh, young 16-year-olds like Lady Jane Grey, to offer up her, her life, we get to stand here and open up the Word of God and read it in English, in our language. And it has been translated accurately for us. So let's not take Luther's word for it or Calvin's word for it or Lady Jane's word for it. Let's take God's word for it. And let's look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable richness of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And verses 8 and 9 is our key text that we're going to focus on today. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Join me in prayer. Uh, Father, we come before you and we confess the, the truth of that scripture in Ephesians 2. Like Paul, we believe that we were dead in our trespasses, but uh, you came to us and you saved us as a gift through Jesus Christ. Uh, that is our confession. It is in our covenant. Um, but Father, many times our confession, our confessional faith and our, our functional faith don't exactly line up. And although we may confess grace alone, uh, I admit that many times we live a very works-based life, and we model a very works-based faith. And so as we open up the Scriptures today, uh, would your Scriptures and your words uh, open up our hearts to any blind spots that we may have in our, in our understanding of who you are and what it means to be your people? Um, Would we be so overcome by your grace today that we would no longer want to look to our own works to justify ourselves? But through the blood of Jesus Christ, um, we would see ourselves the way that you see us, as being justified through grace. Uh, So we ask that you would do this in our time together in your word. Amen. You guys have a seat. So Ephesians 2... uh, is a, is a real clear explanation of, uh, of the gospel. Uh, the gospel is a word that we use to, uh, to articulate something much bigger in and of itself. It's just, it means the, the, the good news, um, but what is, that, what is that good news? And it's good to just rehearse the gospel over and over again as a church because we never move beyond the gospel. And I know many of you guys have been followers of Jesus for a long time, but we want to rehearse the gospel. What is, what is Ephesians 2 uh, saying? Now, in order to understand what the gospel is, there's just I, I break it down into four categories. God, man, Christ, response. You can use other words, but that helps me remember uh, what, the, what the gospel is. And through a right understanding of these four things, you can articulate uh, the gospel. Uh, Ephesians 2 articulated a lot of this. It talked about uh, God being, being good and God being righteous and God being loving. Those are truths about the reality of who God God is. He is a just being, okay? And if God is a perfectly just being, one of the things God can't do is not punish sin and rebellion. If God didn't punish sin and rebellion, he could not be God because he would not be just. Does that make sense? God is also loving. He is slow to anger. We just sang songs about his tenderness and his love for us. So God desires that none should be apart from him, that all should be with him. But at the same time, God is also just. Those are, those are key components of understanding the gospel. Man. Man is created in the image of God. Man is not God. Man wants to be just, but man is also sinful. Okay? We, in and of ourselves, cannot stop sinning. We are Utterly depraved is one of the words that's going to come out of the the, the Reformation. Augustine believed this. Paul believed this. Jesus believed this. 
The Old Testament attests to this, that mankind is sinful. And because of that sin, we are separated from God. We cannot come to God, and we can do good things, but we can't do enough good things to make up for the bad things. The Jews tried in the Old Testament. The story doesn't end well. The law does not work. We are broken, broken image bearers of God, unable to completely repair ourselves, okay? God, knowing that about man, sends His Son, Jesus Christ. If man is sinful and man cannot get to God because of that sin, the only way to pay for sin is through atonement. A a price has to be paid. This isn't unique to faith. Our our legal system operates on the same way. The prison system operates on the same way. You break something, there's a consequence. It's a reality of how we live today. And God, knowing that, sent Jesus Christ to be the penalty for all of that sin that had been committed against him. But he had to live a sinless life. Otherwise, when he died, he'd just be paying for his own sin. So Jesus lives a sinful life. And because he is fully man, he can then be the sacrifice for all of man's sin against God. And because he is fully God, he can not only pay the the sacrifice for the sin of the people at that time, he can pay the sacrifice for the people in the past and the people for us today. But that truth about the gospel of who God is and who we are and what Jesus did requires a response. And that response is through faith, is through repentance, faith, and obedience. What Jesus did for us requires us to respond to. We acknowledge, we confess sin. We repent and say, I am not God. I have tried to be God. I am sinful. I do need Jesus Christ. But after that repentance, we turn in faith to now see ourselves as as children of God, loved by God atoned for our sin, grafted into the kingdom of God, right? And God, when He looks at us now, He sees us as holy and righteous because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That then leads us to obedience, works, good works for the name of Jesus Christ that do not earn our salvation, but that are evidence then of our salvation and the grace that we've experienced through Jesus Christ. Right? We, we were like, okay, I got it. Thank you for that rehearsal of the gospel. Here's the problem. We have heard this so much and, and been taught it so much in church, if you, if you grew up in an in a evangelical church, that we tend to like check the box of grace alone. Okay, I got it. Grace alone. I'm saved by grace. I can't earn my own salvation. I'm a sinner. You know, I, I believe that. And I believe that although we confess that we are saved by grace alone, what we demonstrate with our actions is you get what you deserve. Okay? When you think about the way that we live out our lives, and particularly the grace that we extend to other people, says you get what you deserve. And I get what I deserve. Some days I don't deserve grace. But then other days I do deserve grace. There was a saying in, uh, in, the, in the Reformation that the, that the Catholics used uh, that, that, that um, spoke a lot to this. 
And it's a Latin phrase, and um, my Latin's a little sketchy. Uh, but the phrase was, Fascera uh, quad inse est. Okay? Fascera quad inse est, which literally means do what lies within you or do your best. So theologians would use this term, Catholic theologians, they would say, what does God expect out of you? He expects facera quad in se est, to do your best. And if you do your best, then God will do the rest. But it's the combination of you doing your best and the work of Jesus Christ together that lead to salvation. I believe that that phrase is as alive today as it was 500 years ago. And the reason that I would believe that is because I see it over and over again. We see it in the Old Testament 4,000 years ago, do your best. We see it in the Pharisees' uh, life, in the, in the religious leaders' lives during the, during the time of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Uh, we see it 1,500 years ago in Pelagius' argument. We see it 500 years ago in uh, the Catholic theologian's argument. And we see it still today that just do the best you can, and that's all God expects of you. Just do more good things in life than bad things, and God will accept you. That's a theology about what you believe to be true about God. And it's a theology that leads to trying to merit salvation. So where do we see this theology in our lives? Or particularly, where do I see it in my life? I see it in my life on my good days and my bad days in my Christian faith. So walk with me here. On a good day in our faith, we get up, we're we're spending time in God's Word, right? We're involved in church. We're going to church on a regular basis. We're, we're giving to God. We are not sinning against our, our spouse or our, or our children. We're really leading our families. We're working hard at our jobs. We're not sinning sexually. On those days, we feel pretty good about ourselves. And to be honest, we expect the grace of God on those days. Why? Because we don't tend to ask for it on those days, do we? And then sometimes something difficult happens in our lives on those days, and and automatically we're taken back, and we get ticked at God because He's not holding up His end of the bargain. God, why are you doing this to me? Look at all these things I was doing. So we see that theology in our good days, don't we? How about our bad days? I think we see it even more clearly. In our bad days, we get up and we don't read God's Word, and and we snap at our kids for taking too long to get ready in the morning. And then we get in an argument with a coworker. Maybe we secretly sin sexually. Well, how do we respond to those bad days in our faith? We're filled with shame and we beat ourselves up. On, those, on the days that we don't do our best, then we don't expect the grace of God. And we don't expect to be used by God. We believe that we've actually let God down. Have you ever felt too guilty to pray? Have you ever isolated yourself because of sin? And then it's only after spending a time beating yourself up that you then feel good enough to come back and pray 
and come to church and have a relationship with God? Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Discipline of Grace, says this, Regardless of our performance, we are always dependent on God's grace. It's His undeserved favor to those who deserve His wrath. Some days, we may, we may be more acutely conscious of our sinfulness and hence more aware of our need of His grace. But there is never a day when we can stand before Him on our own two feet of performance when we are worthy enough to deserve His blessing. So for us to functionally believe that we are saved by grace and not by our own merit is to be acutely aware of our need for God's grace and at the same time be painfully aware of our total undeservedness of that same grace. Okay, think about that. To live grace alone lives, we must be acutely aware of our need for God's grace and at the same time be painfully aware of our total undeservedness of that grace. How do we do that? How do, how do we get up every day and live a life, a grace alone life? I believe we do it by constantly reminding ourselves of the gospel, of what Jesus Christ did for us. We see this in Romans 5, 1 through 2. Paul, as he's unpacking his theology of justification, he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look what he says in verse 2. Through him, through Jesus, we have, all, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So it's what Jesus Christ did for us and reminding ourselves of that, that we stay in the grace of God, in our own minds, right? We're, our, we're always in the grace of God. We just don't believe it. That's why we sin. And so in order to be reminded of the grace of God, we then have to always preach the gospel to ourselves. But here's the problem with that. In our lives many times, this is how we, that's a horrible beat. Um, we have a birth over here. I know, bad, isn't it? We have our death over here. Let's say somewhere in the middle. We come to faith in Christ. We are saved. We repent. That whole process, right? Well, we tend to look at the gospel as this thing that led me to salvation. And then we tend to look at this part of our life as this thing called discipleship. And please hear me, discipleship is a good thing. Being disciplined to be the image of Jesus Christ is a good thing. But so much of this requires our own efforts at working at it. So we tend to say, well, there's the gospel that saved me, and then there's this area of my life now as a follower of Jesus where I just have to discipline myself to be more like Jesus. But the problem with this understanding is the gospel actually never stops in the life of a Christian. And you have to continually preach the gospel to yourself over and over and over and over again in order to be discipled. Otherwise, you start leaning toward a works righteousness. So the way to course correct is then to, to speak the gospel to yourself over and over and over again. And if this gathering on Sunday morning is the only place you're hearing the gospel, that means that you're going to spend your whole week leaning toward works righteousness 
And then it's going to take this injection to try to bring you back in and be reminded of the gospel. But what if throughout the week we were always speaking the gospel to ourselves? That we were doing it in our time in the Word, and we were doing it through our conversations with one another, not only reminding each other that, hey, you're sinful. Remember that thing you did to your wife last week? That's wrong. But at the same time, Jesus Christ loves you, and He died for you. That's the gospel. We can't choose one of these other, one or the other. We have to constantly do both of them. I wonder how many times, I think, I know in my life, I feel like an, an evidence that I, I, I struggle with this works righteousness is that I believe so many times that the blessings of God on my life are dependent on me doing something. You know, how many times do we only ask or expect blessing when we're not dealing with some type of habitual sin in our lives? See, when, when we pray to God for blessing, God does not examine our performance to see if we're worthy enough to receive that blessing. Rather, He looks to see if we are trusting in the merit of His Son as the only hope for securing that blessing. That is a gospel message that I have to preach to myself over and over and over again. Because what you see in my life many times is I think, well, you know, I've got these habitual sins in my life. I'm always sinning. And so that sin is preventing some blessing from happening in my life. So maybe my church isn't as big as my buddy's church because of that sin that I deal with. And if I could just get my act together with that sin, then I would then be receiving more of a blessing from God. You realize what that theology is? It's works-based righteousness, right? I got to get my act together first. And you don't. That's, that's what grace is, not having to get your act together first. See, the challenge is if we're not daily reminding ourselves that we need God's grace and we don't deserve God's grace, then it leads to one of two things a lot of times. It'll either lead to like legalism, which is how the Pharisees lived. It's those Christians that believe that they, they have to look good on the outside. They have to have everything right on the outside in order to be accepted by God. They're constantly pointing out the, the sins of other people. They care about outward, outward appearances. Or it leads to a focus on guilt, which then leads to shame. And I see this a lot in our church, and I see this a lot in my own life, guilt and shame. Guilt and shame was a foundational issue, issue that uh, both Calvin and Luther deal, dealt with. Uh, Luther, in particular, um, had to learn that he could not earn the favor of God. And, and Luther tried so hard for so many years to discipline himself. That's why monks live the way that they do. They're trying to avoid every possible way to sin. Because if they can avoid enough sin, God will accept them. Luther also spent years of his life beating himself up because he thought that if he beat himself up enough, then he would be ashamed enough and then he would stop sinning. But it didn't work. And so Luther finally came to this breaking point as he's reading the Scriptures and he's reading Ephesians and realizing that I am sinful and at the same time I'm completely loved by God and I'm completely accepted in His eyes. 
When we believe that we are saved by grace alone, we stop beating ourselves up when we sin. And we stop beating up other people when they sin. We do that because we think that if we beat them up enough or we beat ourselves up enough, we'll stop sinning. But it doesn't work. All that does is just put more of a burden on top of us. Places more blame and more guilt and more shame. And it doesn't lead to transformation. If anything, it just leads to hiding. Hear me out, church. We do need to remind ourselves and others of our sinfulness. I I fully believe in calling people to repentance and faith. But if that's all we do, and we don't leave people and ourselves to believe that we are forgiven through Christ, there's nothing you have done or that has been done to you that the blood of Jesus does not cover. And if we don't believe that, it will lead to lives of shame. It is the joy of knowing our sins are forgiven that no matter how much we stumble and fall today, that God does not count our sins against us. Say that again. It is the joy of knowing our sins are forgiven that no matter how much we stumble and fall today, God does not count our sins against us. I love what 2 Corinthians says about this. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. It says, for the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I read a translation, uh, uh, kind of a a paraphrase of this this week. It was by a guy named Kenneth Woost. He uh, has a a, a translation. We're going to put it up here on the screen. This is what he says. Uh, of his interpretation of 2 Corinthians 5, 14-15. For the love which Christ has for me presses on me from all sides, holding me to one end and prohibiting me from considering any other, wrapping itself around me in tenderness, giving me an impelling motive. I love that. In tenderness he sought me. And he holds me together. He he wraps himself around me. Like I said a minute ago, if we believe this, this means that we are never outside of God's grace. We don't sin losing the grace of God. We sin because we've forgotten that we are in the grace of God. So then we remind ourselves of that grace. Comes back to preaching the truth of our, to preaching the truth of our gospel to, uh, to ourselves and to others daily of grace alone. When you sin and when I sin, which we will much, we turn in repentance and faith, remembering the grace of God. Repentance is a privilege of the Christian life; it's not a duty. We should look forward to repentance because in that moment, we are reminded of the grace of God once again. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to practice sola gratia today as a church through the receiving of communion. Uh, During the Reformation, uh, it was the first time that the church began to regularly receive communion. And they made that choice 
because they said, we need a constant reminder of this grace that we've received through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And so I want to invite you guys as you come to receive communion, we want to do it in a way that we are acutely aware of our need for God's grace and at the same time painfully aware of our total undeservedness of that grace. And as you receive communion, once again, let the love of God wash over you. Let it hold you fast and strong. And let it then lead us to lives of good works as a response to that grace that we receive from Jesus Christ. Let's do that together as a church. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much for your gospel message. Uh, Father, I, I look back on just my own journey with you, and I, and I see so much sin and rebellion. And although I, I have accepted you as my Savior, and I believe that you died on the cross, I still, I still find myself beating myself up over my sin. Father, I pray you'd open up my heart to believe that I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not by my own merit. As we come to these tables, Father, we do so remembering that we are sinful and that we need your grace and that we are undeserved of that grace. And it is, like Paul said, a free gift received, given by you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please visit us at www.redseachurch.org or contact us at info at redseachurch.org.